You, you need to come to church immediately after attending a Raiders game. You know, just something about the cleansing. Oh, man, that was rough. Yeah, it was good to get away. I really appreciate you uh, giving me the, uh, the weekend off just to take my wife to, to see her Broncos. That's just so you know, let's set the record straight. Cameron's a Raiders fan. I, I, I'm not. So, uh, but uh, yeah, there were, there were people on Facebook saying, you know, hey, man, are you a Raiders fan, dude? That's not cool. I was like, why? You know, I can like the 83 Raiders, right? You know, they were awesome then. But uh, it was good to get away and, and to see Peyton Manning from, I don't know, 150 yards away. And he was just like a little blur down there. But, man, that guy is amazing. And uh, so it was good to get away and, and get a break and, and just, uh, just go experience some different culture. Wow. Hip-hop culture. Woo! Not really. Not for me. But... Uh, it's good to be back with you guys. Uh, take your Bibles and turn over to Acts 15. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. That's where we've been uh, studying the Word of God. And uh, I'd like to just offer up another prayer to the Lord before we uh, go any further. Acts 15, Lord, uh, you know, if there were ever a time where we would need the aid of your Holy Spirit, it would be now, as your word is preached, as dull creatures who um, lack focus and attentiveness, especially me, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us now. Pray the Holy Spirit would help me to rightly divide the truth. Lord, take your word today and apply it to each of us. Meet us where we're at, Lord, and, but don't keep us where we're at. And uh, transform us through it, Lord. It's a, a powerful tool, the most powerful, I would say. And, uh, and so we want to fix our gaze upon you, open our hearts, minds, and ears to you may we receive from you today and may there not be one soul in this room that that hears from phil baker we pray god that you would speak through your word and we trust you and so teach us today about grace teach us about faith and uh, we entrust this time to you may you be glorified and we pray this in jesus name amen we have been studying the book of Acts for a while. I did go back and listen to Aaron's sermon uh, from last Sunday, and he made a reference to the fact that we've been in it forever. So uh, thank you, yeah. And I also recall him saying something about, look, man, we need to get in trouble for taking a Sunday off to go to a football game. So uh, you're, I'm, putting you on, I'm putting you on blast right here. You're, you've been warned. Um, actually, he would have preferred to have been here with you after that game. But... Uh, so, good, good deal, though. But we did, uh, we did engage in this uh, study, started to, to, to open up the, the book of Acts some time ago, and, and uh, we've been in it for a while. We're going on a, a couple of years here, and, and I, I don't know, does that, yeah, I, I don't think anyone would answer honestly right now if I said raise your hand, but does that bother you? 
You know, I, it doesn't, I don't know what it is about the Word of God. You know, you, you just, you open it up and there's something new and fresh every week. And, and so you can take your time, you know, working your way through it kind of methodically and systematically. And it doesn't, I, I suppose to those who, who have not the Spirit, it would probably be exasperating. But to those who are in Christ, it's a great joy and it's something that I look forward to every week, and so it doesn't bother me that we take time to, to study, and I hope it doesn't bother you. So we began a couple of weeks ago, I'd say probably about three weeks ago, to delve into chapter 15. We crossed over out of 14. We were in 14 for a, a while, and we began to examine 15. And if you were here with us, uh, you might recall that I began to uh, expound the text by giving an overview of like the major heresies that have arisen in the church and as well as the ecumenical, which means all church council meetings that were held to, to counter these errors that have arisen throughout church's history. And we talked about docetism and you know, and Gnosticism and Montanism, modalism, Arianism, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, traditionalism, Arminianism, ism, 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 all of these different isms that came maybe from the outside and then came in and perpetrated the church and began to be taught in the church or these things, but these heresies. And, and I brought up these heresies. I spent that time really before getting into the text just to sort of establish a little bit of a historical account and timeline that would help us transition into chapter 15. I think that uh, most Christians today, including myself at times, are pretty unaware of church history. You know, we don't really know, you know, how we've come to these doctrinal conclusions today and and we, we were not aware of the things that the church has had to deal with throughout all of its, you know, 20, near 20 centuries or so. And there's just been so many things that the church has had to deal with in terms of heresy and error and, and even is plagued by these things today. And so I thought it would be helpful weeks ago to kind of give you an overview of those things. And if you didn't catch that sermon, it might be a good idea for you to go online and listen to it so you can, I mean, it's just really, to me, it's just fascinating stuff, you know, and, and, and it's amazing when you look at these heresies that have arisen, uh, the church has done a pretty good job of trying to stamp them out, but at the same time, many in the church throughout the centuries adopted these things, and that's, you would be surprised how much of your own personal theology is grounded in these errors as opposed to the very word of God. It's startling, it's scary, it kind of blows your mind. So there's great value in studying church history. There's great value in looking at heresies, ecumenical meetings, and these things that have existed. There's great value in studying this text that we're going to be looking at in more graphic detail uh, today. The fact of the matter is the church has always been under attack. Um, I would say that, you know, the pre-church era, the nation of Israel, the word of God, these things were always and have always been under attack. The warfare began in the garden, you know, where Satan called into question the very truth of God. And our first parents, unfortunately, believed his lies. And so the word of God, the message of the church, has always been in a state of attack. Um, and that's just the reality of it. Now, 
Chapter 15 is highly significant in the book of Acts, this historical account of Luke, of the Word of God, because it really kind of marks and records the first major heresy to arise um, in the church. Now, that's not to say that there weren't others, but according to the Acts account, this is really the first one. This is the first big one that we, that we see, and so that's why the historical overview and those things are important. This is kind of a starting point for the church to begin to do, you know, battle with heresy. Chapter 15 marks really the first heresy to arise, and it marks the first ecumenical council meeting, the first time that all the leaders of the church came together to try to figure out how to deal with this thing, this monster of a heresy. In chapter 15, verse 1, unauthorized men, men who were not sent by the apostles and elders of the Jerusalem body, if you will, that was kind of the central place uh, of the church where the primary leadership was, unauthorized men came out from amongst this body of leadership. I think it was unannounced and, and it was obviously not authorized. And so guys came out of that group in Jerusalem and they traveled up north. It says down in the text, but we know Syrian Antioch was actually to the north and I think that's just a figure of speech. But they traveled up to where Paul and Barnabas were actually doing some ministry at that church at Syrian Antioch. So these guys left down here, traveled many days to go up north and went into this church at Syrian Antioch, which was primarily a Gentile church, non-Jewish. They went into this church, traveled this distance, and went up there. And when they arrived, they began to teach the Gentiles, these non-Jewish Christians, these Gentile converts, a false message of salvation. Paul and Barnabas had been preaching that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, obviously for the glory of God alone, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That was penned a little later, but that is the gist of the gospel. It's a grace thing. It's a faith thing. It's for the glory of God alone kind of thing. And that was really Paul and Barnabas's mantra. When they presented the gospel, it was always about God's grace. It was always about faith in this. There was no works component or anything like that to it. And so that is the essence of the gospel and the heart of the gospel. And that's what Paul and Barnabas had been preaching for so long. But the men from Jerusalem came and contradicted them. They came and began to teach something quite and extraordinarily different from what they had been saying. They added circumcision to salvation. They said, unless you are circumcised... According to the custom of Moses, according to what Moses has recorded for us, you cannot be saved. That was their message. That was their gospel invitation. It was as if they said, what these guys have been telling you is cool, but it's half true. Yeah, it's a grace thing. Yeah, it's a faith thing, but it's more than that. It's also a works thing. There's a circumcision component involved in it. You can't be involved, you can't be a part of the covenant community of God without getting that. That's their old school belief. And so they contradicted Paul and Barnabas. And what a an ex crazy, extraordinary thing that must have been. Now, the theological term for this heresy 
There is a theological term for this heresy, and it's a word that's borrowed, but it's called synergism. Synergism. Synergism is a belief that salvation comes through a combination of believing and doing or keeping. Okay? Synergism. Can you say it? Synergism. It's like a dual effort kind of thing. God did his part, now we got to do our part. And we got to keep doing our part to maintain this great thing that God has given us. And so that's the basic idea of synergism. It's this combination of believing, faith, and doing or keeping. On the other side of the spectrum, a day and night difference, you have what's called monergism. Monergism basically holds that salvation is an act of God alone. It holds that God alone brings men to faith and that he alone saves, that it is purely a grace thing. And the very definition of grace is that it's, it's favor, uh, you know, it's favor or something that's given, you know, without any merit whatsoever. It's just freely given. You know, if you change that meaning at all, if grace is, if grace means that, you know, it's, it's yeah, he gives me something, but I got to do my part to get it, then it's no longer grace. Grace is just freely given when you don't deserve it. And so that's what monergism is. It's entirely God. It's entirely grace. It's all him. Now, synergism can be found in, I would say, many so-called, I put it in quotes, Christ-based circles, uh, denominations or gatherings or groups of people that claim to be Christian, and yet they're synergistic. There's, there's tons and tons of them. I, it, this may come as a surprise to you, and, and if you have this background or that's how, who you are today, I, I do not mean to offend you by, you know, calling out these groups by name, but I think it's good for you to be informed, and so don't take offense to it, just ponder, and this is going to come as a surprise, but one of the largest Christ-based synergistic groups out there is Catholicism. 100% synergistic. God did his part, now you do your part and you maintain. You got to keep your salvation because you can lose it. That's what Catholicism teaches basically. Now does that mean every little thread of Catholicism clings to that kind of belief? No, there's variations of it, there's different threads. But the primary teaching and belief behind Catholicism is God did his part, now you do your part and you got to keep up your part. You got to maintain it, hold it, keep it you know, and, and keep working it and cultivate it and, and all this stuff. So Catholicism is a very synergistic belief system. It basically, at the core of it, teaches that salvation comes to those who believe in Jesus. And I know there were some statements made lately about, you know, about the Pope saying that atheists can be saved through their works, but I don't, I'm not sure that, that, that Pope Francis said that. I, I read his comments and I think people took that out of context because Protestants love to just sit there and wait for the Pope to say something. Look! You know, and it's like, well, you know, let's, let's hold things in context. But I, I'm not sure that that's what he taught. But the fact of the matter is Catholicism does teach that salvation comes to those who believe in Jesus, but who also get baptized and who also join the church. Did you know that if you leave the Catholic Church, you're no longer saved? That's basic Catholic doctrine. So what is getting baptized? That is a human effort-based work. What is joining a church and staying in a church and being involved in church? That is human effort. Okay, believing is not, is, is not a human effort. That's a faith thing. I'm not putting forth the effort to believe. Faith is given, I believe. But the other two things are absolutely 
something that I have to put forth stamina and strength and effort to do. And so that's synergism there. The Church of Christ, have you ever heard of the Church of Christ? They're a big Christian denomination. And there's a lot of godly people in the Church of Christ. But unfortunately, it's a synergistic movement because unless you are water baptized, you are not saved. That's just the reality that they live by. And they call on Scripture to make that point. Um, so that's another one. Uh, Mormonism is extraordinarily synergistic. It teaches that salvation comes through belief in Jesus. Um, it comes through obeying the Mormon rules and ordinances produced in the Book of Mormon. Um, also through being sealed in a temple and becoming a member of the Mormon church. The Mormon church teaches too, if you disassociate yourself from the Mormon church, you are no longer saved. Your salvation isn't so much in faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure which Jesus they worship. There's a bunch of different Jesuses out there apparently. But their point is, if you leave the Mormon church, you lose your salvation. You have to be a member and a part of that movement to be saved. And so those are some examples of synergistic belief or synergistic salvation. Are there more? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Another little quick interesting bit of information that I discovered as I was looking at Mormon doctrine is that 85% of Mormon converts are ex-evangelical. Mormons focus on Christians. They come to Christians and they say, look, what you've got is cool, but it's not as good as what we have. We have, you have the gospel, but there's something missing in the gospel that you have. And we have this additional revelation that shows us the fullness of the gospel. And so they come to Christians, they say these things, and they lure them away. 85% of Mormons are ex-evangelical. Now that's, that's a scary number. And that's an interesting fact and data. And, and what are we to do with Catholics? What are we to do with Mormons? What are we to do with Church of Christ people? Proclaim the truth. Show them grace. Love them. But stand on truth. And so those are some synergistic ideas, people, concepts, uh, religions, and these sorts of things. Now, what we're reading about here in our text is a form of synergism. It is a faith plus sort of religion or belief system, if you will. But this is not the, the first time that synergism appears in Scripture, okay? It might be the first time that it sort of appears in the book of Acts, but it's certainly not the first time it appears in Scripture. The Old Testament shows that, you know, that the Jewish people have a long history of trying to add to faith and trying to earn their way with God, man. I mean, that is, that is the struggle of the nation of Israel for their entire time that they've been around since their existence. They've always battled between faith and between faith plus doing. If you, do, if you believe, that's great, but you got to do these things too. And so uh, that is a, this is an age-old heresy, an age-old error that, that has plagued the world, plagued the nation of Israel. For many of the Jewish people, you know, circumcision uh, was seen, and I think still is seen, as a saving act, okay, rather than as a symbol of an inward reality, an inward faith. 
you know. And that's, I think, what you have playing out here. You can't be saved unless you are physically circumcised. That's what these guys were promoting. That's an age-old heresy that has plagued the nation of Israel and even was attempting to plague the church here. But if you study the scripture, you'll see that circumcision was never intended for anything like that. It was a physical or outward symbol of inward faith and inward or even an outward expression of, you know, covenant relationship with God. And so it was never to be this saving thing, but a thing that represented your faith. Biblically speaking, things like circumcision and baptism can never save a person. God never decreed to save anyone through any type of work or deed, whether it be circumcision or baptism. Since the beginning, salvation has always come, always been by grace through faith. And many people ask today, and maybe some of you are wondering, well, how were people saved before Jesus came? The same way they're saved today, by grace through faith. It's always been a grace thing. It's always been a faith thing. People in the Old Testament trusted and hoped in God's Messiah to come in the Redeemer. If you think of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham was justified or made righteous before God, not according to his works, deeds, or obedience, but according to his faith. It says it clearly in Romans 4, 1 to 3. So, people in the Old Testament were saved the same way they are today, by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have the wonderful privilege of knowing Jesus in a way that they didn't because he had yet to be revealed in a more fuller sense. But they were still hoping in a Messiah to come. For them it was a belief in the one to come. For it is a belief in the one who came and is coming again. Is there an order to salvation? A, a chain by which it plays out? Is there a way that God actually does this? Is there a structure to it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think Colby talked about this maybe four or five weeks ago in, in some extraordinary detail. It was a very enriching, edifying sermon. He talked about these things. The study of this or the study of salvation is co called soteriology. Have you ever heard of that technical term? Soteriology. Uh, the links of... Uh, and basically what there is is there's this kind of golden chain, we like to call it, or there's a, a chain that kind of describes how God saves in this order. And the links of this chain of salvation, the soteriology, are located throughout the scriptures. They really are. There's bits and pieces of it scattered throughout how God saves. He does this, 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 this. They're all over the place. And it's really neat to do a study on that and to kind of assemble them. But I think Romans 8, 29 to 30 gives us probably one of the clearest one-time shots and views of it. And uh, so I'd like for you to turn over there if you can. Romans 8, 29, or 28 to 30 actually, I believe is where we're going to start. Or maybe 29, I think 29. Romans 8, 28, Romans 8, 29 to 30. Let's start there. Yeah, I just wrote my, in my note wrong. Romans 8, 29 to 30. Does it begin, because I don't have my Bible open there because it'll take me 40 minutes to turn there. Does it begin with, for those whom he foreknew? Okay, so it is 29. It says, are you there, by the way? Yeah. Excellent. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, right there, we call that passage the golden chain. There is an order to salvation. God illustrated for us right there how he saves a person, how it plays out. Here is the chain or order, okay, according to this text. Number one, God foreknew. Salvation begins in the mind of God and in his foreknowledge, not of what people would do in the future, but based upon his own electing power. He foreknew who he would save according to the, according to the counsel of his own will. So salvation begins in the mind of God in eternity past. Okay? It doesn't begin right now at this very moment with you or with Sam down the street or whatever. It began in eternity past in the infinite all-knowing mind of God. God foreknew whom he would save. Salvation, I like to say, began in the infinite eternal mind of God. God foreknew who he would save and he determined to save them in eternity past according to the counsel of his own will. And that is so clearly illustrated. I think in this text, if you look at the original language, more expressed in Ephesians 1.11 where it just straight up says, God picked you, you didn't pick him. Okay, that happened according to his foreknowledge in eternity past. The second thing we see in the text, and that's a difficult thing to wrestle with, isn't it? That means God picked some. And that's, that's been a wrestling match, a theological wrestling match for a long time, although it settled in my mind. Number two, God predestined. That's right there in the text. God predestined them, this body, this group, his people, the ones he foreknew he would pick. He predestined them to be what? What is salvation? Is to be conformed to the image of his son. Have you ever wondered what salvation is and what the purpose of it is? That's it. It's right there in your Bible. It's right there in 829 to be conformed into the image of his son. He picked you in eternity past to mold you and transform you into the image of his son. He predestined that that would take place. Nothing can stop that from taking place. That is truly what salvation is, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. It is to be made like him. In this life, Christians bear his righteousness and many of Jesus' attributes. We love we sacrifice, we serve, we proclaim the gospel. We do as he did because we are being conformed into his image. We act like him, speak like him, behave like him. We live out the fruits of the spirit. God actually predestined that we would become like Jesus. Not a God, as Mormons teach, like Jesus, but in his likeness. In his likeness, that we would bear many of his attributes, that we would love and resemble him. So, you have the foreknowledge, you have the predestination, and then you have number three, the calling. God calls. It's right there in the text. The moment, and this is so important that you understand, because so many of us try to take credit for this, you must understand, the moment you believed, you did not bring yourself to that point of belief. Never think that you did. Don't think that, well, I went through this in my life and did that, and then I finally just made that choice, and I, and, I, and I chose to believe. You did not choose to believe. Left to yourself, you will never choose God, never choose to believe. That's 
the effect that your sinful depravity has on your own body, your own spirituality. You are what the scriptures call necros, dead. You are spiritually dead before God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they died. Physically later, spiritually immediately. And so don't ever think to yourself, well, I made this choice. I did this. Okay, if you want to glory in that, make sure that you say at the same time, but if it hadn't been for God's grace and what he did, I never would have got to that point because that's the reality of it. You believe because God called you to believe. Faith is a gift. Understand that. God calls. God did that. He called you. He called you to repentance. He called you to faith. And guess what you did? Did you do something? Yeah, you did. You surrendered. You did. You did something there, but you surrendered. You gave in. You didn't say, well, I don't, I don't want to do this. You went, wait a minute. I see something different. I feel something different. I'm awakened to something different. Maybe this is what I've been looking for my, my whole life. Something happened. You clicked. It changed. He called you, he granted repentance. The Bible says the Holy Spirit grants repentance. The Bible says God grants and gives faith. He gave these things, you surrendered. Now, this calling of God that's mentioned in this text is what we call an effectual calling. It's not a general calling where it goes out and invites everyone. Hey, everyone, come here and believe in Jesus. Woo, that's a great thing, right? What do you think I'm doing? I have no power to affect salvation in anyone's lives. When I preach the gospel, when you share the gospel with a neighbor or someone at the grocery store or wherever it is, you do your thing, and I hope you're doing that. You are giving the gospel in a general sense. You are calling people to repentance and faith, but there, you don't have an effectual power behind what you're saying. But God's calling is, can be done in a general sense like I'm doing right now, but in the life of someone in this room, it could have a powerful, profound, transformative, regenerating, illuminating effect. So this calling that we're talking about here isn't a general kind of thing. Everyone come to Jesus. That's cool. But somebody out there goes, I am coming to Jesus. That's the effectual calling. It's different than the general one. And so what we're talking about in this text is that definitive, effectual powerful, changes you in a nanosecond call. That's what this is. The call down, the call comes down from God through the Holy Spirit with just saturated in Jesus' resurrection power that literally brings a spiritually dead person to spiritual life. God foreknew, foreplanned, he planned through predestination, this is who you'd become, and that at his appointed time, he calls with an effectual call. The recipient of the call is now able to hear rightly, to see rightly, and to receive the things of God rightly. He or she actually begins to rejoice in the things of God like never before. Is that what it was like for you when you were converted? That's what it was like for me. Literally, I sat in church and watched my, my, you know, we used to carry these things called watches. I know we don't have them anymore. It's, it's, an, it's a wrist clock now, right? They're just ancient. And I would, I would, my wife drugged me to church all the time, and I, and I really despised her for it. But, you know, I was a maniac, and so it was good. It gave her peace of mind. And so I would go to church with her, and I would sit there, and I would look at that thing, and I've never seen the clock move so slow. The last time it moved that, so, that slow was in algebra, 
at Davis. And I was like, this is, this is, I hate this. And I would sit there and look at that and I would say, man, is this ever going to end? Look at these idiots in here. What a bunch of brainwashed lemmings. That's what I would think to myself. And guess what? One day, I took my watch off because I didn't know, want to know when it was going to end. And I had my arms up. I'm a brainwashed lemming now. Woo, praise the Lord. Uh, it just happened. It was like a, a flip of a switch. It really was. It was that definitive, powerful, no going back, effectual call of God. I passed from darkness to light. And I responded in submission and in tears. And I knew that I'd finally received what I'd been looking for my whole life. And really what I'd been denying and rejecting my whole life. Because I didn't think there was really anything legitimate about faith. God calls like that. That was even my own experience. Primary reason why I'm so fascinated by Calvinistic doctrine, because Calvinistic doctrine talks about God does it, and you know, and you're changed, and, and you can be you could be walking in the wrong direction, and all of a sudden God changes your heart, and you're in there. And that was exactly my conversion. I didn't have a process where I was broken. I was ticked off, mad, despised God, despised my wife's faith, all these things, and then I was changed. I didn't pray some prayer of salvation or go through this process. I'm not saying that God doesn't take people through that process. Sometimes he does. But it was just instantaneous for me. And so, I'm not opposed to John Calvin's interpretation of Scripture because I think it's accurate. Anyways, beyond that, and right now people are going, oh my gosh, he's one of those. Yes, I am. Sorry. Um, number four, God justifies. He justifies. When a person receives the call of God, he or she, and we're talking about that effectual call that we just looked at, he or she submits to their new Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. They give in to him. They don't say, well, I don't really think I want to do this thing. That call comes with effectual power. You're changed. You want Jesus now like never before. And what do they do? They turn right around and, I mean, literally, right in that moment, they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They do. That's the response. Faith is, is really, it's a gift that's given. It's made manifest by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you begin to exercise it immediately when your eyes are opened. You know, it's like, bam, it clicks. You believe in Jesus Christ. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And you spend the rest of your life examining what that means and studying what that means. And your faith grows and your sanctification and all these kinds of things happen and take place. Person receives the call. They respond in faith. It's like they exercise faith back, the gift given. They exercise it back through gratitude. And I believe now. And what do they do when they believe? The Bible teaches that they become clothed in Jesus' righteousness. Okay? We are justified by faith alone. That means to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and to be accepted by God, to be adopted as his son or daughter. So you've got, this you've got this foreknowledge, you've got this predestination thing, you've got this calling, and then you've got this justification. We are justified by faith. God says, you are right with me, you believe in Jesus Christ. I've enabled you to do that by my sovereign power. He declares to you, you are my child, you exercise faith. Bam, you are justified, okay? So he justifies. And then five, the last thing we see in the chain here, are there different expressions of this in a broader thing in Scripture? Yes, this is simple. God glorifies. It's right there at the end of the text. Glorifies. This has to do with the final stage 
of what we call our sanctification. Sanctification is the process of being made like Jesus. Okay? Salvation, you're, part of salvation is sanctification. You get saved. God, you know, he predestined for these things to happen. He calls you out of darkness. And then, he, you know, you respond in faith. And then he begins to sanctify you. He begins to chip away at all the junk, the garbage. And for me, you know, he uses a bulldozer and a wrecking ball because I got a lot of junk. Are you with me? Anyone else got a lot of junk? Man, there's a lot of self-righteous people. And people are like, I ain't got no junk. I got no junk. I'm good. Yeah, you got more junk than me, man. No, right? But you got junk. And he begins to chip away at this stuff. And it's like, this is Phil. This is what I look like. But underneath it, there's kind of an image of Jesus. And so he's chipping away all this stuff. And then Jesus is starting to appear. Jesus is changing my life. The Holy Spirit is changing. That's sanctification. And so glorification has to do with sanctification. But it's the end of the process. Glorification is that critical moment where our, our being made in the likeness of Jesus Christ, being made like the Son of God, is brought to full completion. And, and I think there's a false belief out there. People think that the minute they breathe their last breath and go to be with Jesus, they're completely glorified. Not true. Not true. Okay? And this is where this is probably going to help some of you scholars out here that, you know, study the Bible ferociously and you think, wait a minute, he's crossing some lines. Now, just listen to me here. This is something that wowed me this week as I was studying. I do believe, according to Scripture, I, I have no doubt in my mind that glorification comes in waves. It comes in stages, okay? It comes in a couple of stages, Two waves, I would say. The first wave takes place when we pass away out of this physical life into the next life with Jesus Christ, which is really our true life. That's the real life that we belong to and that we will enjoy for eternity. So glorification happens to some degree, not fully, but to some degree when we pass away. What happens when we pass away? To be absent from the body is to what? Be in the presence of Jesus Christ. He is incredibly uh, just filled with glory, radiant, beautiful, amazing. We receive some of that glory. Our bodies, you know, are no longer, well, we don't even have a body in a spiritual sense then, but there is no more sin. There is no more depravity and these kinds of things. So we do transition out of this physical tent, physical body that's wicked and sinful and hard to deal with into a state where we don't have to wrestle with those things or any of that anymore. And so there is is a glorification. We're in the presence of Jesus and we even get to embody some of his glory. So that's cool. So there's stage one. That happens when you breathe your last breath. To me, that's, that's a, a great comfort to know that no more flu symptoms because that's what I've been dealing with all week. It's just gone, right? Some of you are dealing with things way worse than flu. So it's going to be nice when that passes away. Now here's the key. The second wave, I believe, according to scripture, according to my study, takes place at the resurrection. Okay? At the resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, that third day, right? He just came blasting out of that tomb. Amazing. Came out of that tomb. When Jesus rose from the dead, he received, he received a glorious resurrection body. And if you read the Emmaus account and these things, that enabled him to do things that regular human beings can't do. I mean, you know, 
you want to go to Disneyland, that's really stupid because that's an earthly thing, but you just think about it and you're there. You know what I mean, right? I mean, he, he could do things. He could go through walls and stuff. He, he had the ability in this new glorified body to do things unlike regular human beings. So that's a reality. That's what Scripture teaches. Now, the Scriptures show us that the resurrection of Jesus paved the way for every follower of Jesus, every believer to receive a resurrection body, okay? That's one of the great promises of Jesus' resurrection, that we too, those who are in Christ, will receive a body like his, a resurrection body. Now, unlike the traditional belief of a single, and this is what Judaism holds, unlike the traditional belief of a single resurrection at the end of the age, there appears to be two resurrections in Scripture, okay? The first resurrection takes place in three stages, all right? Take notes, listen. First resurrection takes place in three stages. Stage one already happened, all right? Stage one, at the death of Jesus. How many of you have read this? This is remarkable. At the death of Jesus Christ, the Jerusalem saints were resurrected. Matthew 27, 52 to 53. Have you ever read that? When he died on the cross, there were like seven miracles that took place. That, you know, the, the veil at the temple was torn. There was a massive earthquake. And guess what happened when the earth shook? Tombs opened and old dead saints, maybe 500 years old, 1,000-year-old saints, whatever, they were resurrected. They weren't resuscitated brought back to life, they were literally resurrected into new glorified resurrection bodies. And so the first resurrection takes place in multiple stages. The first one happened when Jesus died on the cross. And I think that's amazing and I think it's worth further study. That's stage one. Stage two, the dead in Christ shall be raised at his return. Okay? 1 Thessalonians 4.16 makes it absolutely clear. It's affirmed corroborated by other scriptures. When Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ rise up. If he came back tomorrow, we wouldn't rise up because we're alive. We'd be taken up with him, but we wouldn't rise up. But anyone that you know that's a Christian and go beyond that, I get, you know, maybe go up to heaven or go up to the clouds with Spurgeon. The old saints, those who are dead in Christ, rise up. When he comes, the trumpet sounds and he returns in the clouds of fire. The dead in Christ shall rise. And so you have the first stage. There was a bunch of people that were resurrected when he died on the cross. Second stage, when he returns, there is a resurrection that happens. The dead in Christ shall rise. And then stage three, we have what's called the resurrection of the martyrs. And this takes place at the end of what we typically call the tribulation period. This period where God dumps out these bulls of wrath on the world, basically makes war with the world, destroys all the enemies, and so on and so forth. There is going to be a resurrection of what's called the martyrs somewhere around that period of time. And that's Revelation 20, verse 4. Now, what's the point? You've got a resurrection that's broken up into segments. Here's the point. Each stage, stage one through three, results in the complete glorification and absolute transformation of every saint into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where glorification is brought to completion and perfection, at the resurrection, at those stages. Okay, where we land in those stages, probably when the Lord returns, if he should tarry any longer and come in a thousand years or whatever, I hope he comes sooner. So anyway, so that's what you have there. Very, very fascinating stuff. I love the fact that the saints will be made most like Jesus, okay? Dead on glorification here when they receive those resurrection bodies. That's when glorification is complete for us at the resurrection. Now there is also a second 
resurrection in the Bible. The first one, three stages. There's a second one in the Bible. And that's what we call the resurrection of the dead or unbelievers. And we see that in Revelation 20, verse 12 to 13. The dead, those who rejected Christ, those who um, never believed and decided to do their own thing, will be raised to face uh, what we call the great white throne judgment of God. And at that judgment, they will be judged for their deeds, for all their thoughts, actions, words, idle words. Every bit of everything that they are will be aired out amongst all. Every secret unturned and spoken before all. It will be such a tremendous moment of shame and disgust for those who reject Jesus Christ. And then the ultimate um, reality there is that they are, they are sent off to suffer for eternity in the fires of hell, the lake of fire, if you will. And so it's a, it's a terrible, frightful, frightful thing. The second resurrection is, is it's, it's just, just dreadful. All the more reason to proclaim the gospel to see people get saved. Now, the golden chain, one more time quickly. What is it? God foreknew, God predestined, God calls, God justifies according to our faith. God glorifies at death and at the resurrection. Now, let me ask you this great question. Where in the chain, according to this text, do we find any reference to man's deeds, good works, or obedience to special rules, or ordinances, or church membership, or any of these things? Where in the chain do we see man doing jack? In fact, I actually had to add faith. Do you see how it just says God calls? I had to add the faith component there because I know it's a true biblical reality, but it doesn't even say anything in the chain about us believing. It just said God does it all. He predestined, he chose, he, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies, he does it all. Why? Because God does do it all. Nowhere in the chain do we see circumcision, do you? Do you see it there? Where's it at? It's not there. Do you see baptism in the chain? No, you don't see baptism in the chain. Where do you see joining a particular church in the chain? You don't see it in the chain. None of these things are mentioned because none of them are key to true biblical salvation, okay? Salvation according to the scriptures alone, really, the testimony of scripture alone is by grace alone, by faith alone. We got the solas here. In Christ alone. Why? For the glory of God alone alone, right? That is salvation. That is the message of Paul and Barnabas. That is the message here today, friends. I showed you the golden chain. It ain't about us. It's about Christ. It's about what he did. But here's the point to the text. Men came from Jerusalem and said, no, that's not how it is. That's not the way that it is. That's the heresy. You don't have it right, Paul, author of Scripture. That is the problem here. They came and rejected the basic biblical gospel. They came and they contradicted the apostle Paul and Barnabas. And what happened? They threw the church into confusion and chaos. Imagine with me right now if somebody came into this place and seized the pulpit and said, 
Everything he said is wrong, and this is the way that it must take place. You must get circumcised. You must get baptized. You must do this in conjunction with your faith. That's what happened at this church. Now, I know darn well our elders are ready to tackle people that would do that. Okay, except for Bruce. He's too brittle. Bruce would be like, brother, you've got to turn from your ways. Aaron like, you know, Colby, you know, Paul would be like, he wouldn't say much. He would just look at you. The guy would drop. I mean, you know, no, is violence the answer to this? No, it's not the answer to this. But Lord, it just gets me mad when we get salvation wrong. Why? Because people's souls hang in the balance. The glory of God hangs in the balance here. If you get salvation wrong, it defames God. If you add to, if you add to the cross, it defames God. If you add to the resurrection, if you subtract from the resurrection, it defames God. If you, if you add or subtract from the burial of Christ, it, it defames God. I don't think people realize that the cross is probably the most vivid, vivid display of God's righteousness and wrath and justice and love and glory the world has ever seen. And when you take away from the cross or when you add to the cross, circumcision, adding to what was done at Calvary, it defames God. I don't care who you are or how you feel about it. As soft and as gentle and as loving as I want to be towards those who do it, I'm also infuriated. Because what you're saying is what took place on this nasty, horrific death sentence instrument here was not enough. And it was. I'm getting fired up. I mean, oh. It baffles my mind. These guys came and said, that's what they said in essence. I want you, the whole church here of Syrian Antioch, I want the whole church of RHC to look. Do you see that? That's a beautiful thing. But it ain't enough. There's something you got to do. You got to go get snipped. For a bunch of Gentiles, well, that's a big, I can't wait to join that faith system. For a bunch of uncircumcised Gentiles, what an invitation, huh? Hey, you know what? I was really going along with this thing until they said that. You can't be a part of this church. You can't be a part of God's church. You can't be a part of his new covenant. You can't be a part of these things unless you go get snipped. They preached synergism, faith plus works. In some ways, I guess I can understand why they believed what they believed and taught what they taught. Being raised in Judaism since birth had a profound effect on people. And just taking into consideration what they were subjected to their entire life. Endless rules. You want to be a part of the covenant? Sammy, you got to do these things. If you don't, do, if you don't get circumcised, God's not going to recognize you and love you. And these are the things they were taught from birth. But much worse than that. Being raised in Judaism had a profound effect on people. Still does today. They were Jews today, and even back then, were required not only to obey the Torah, that's the Old Testament, but the oral traditions and the Talmud and the Mishnah. And I've been reading this fantastic book called Law and Liberty. And it's a biblical look at legalism. 
I'm finding just how legalistic I tend to be as I read it, and it's not good. And I would suggest that every person in this church read it, especially those who were raised in a good Christian home where there were a ton of rules, and if you broke a rule, it was bad for you. If you were raised in that kind of environment where it was endless rules, and when you broke a rule, you were made to feel like the biggest, you know, toad in the world. Well, you know, you've lost God's favor. Because I cheated on a math exam? I wanted to bring home a good grade, a grade to satisfy your expectations for me. If you were raised in a legalistic environment, this book is so liberating. I've been reading this book, and it's, it's phenomenal. The book has several authors, including one of Pastor Aaron's favorites, um, Rob Bell. No, it's not in there. Steve Lawson. Uh, Lawson wrote this in the book. It's, it's phenomenal. He said, the Mishnah, this is an ancient oral tradition. It was passed along in an oral form, and then it was written down in the second century, I believe. But anyways, this comes from this mission. This is one of the rule books for Jews, and this is something they would have subscribed to back then, and this is what's propelling these guys' mentality that came in and lied to this church. The Mishnah was a compilation of countless Jewish oral laws. The Pharisees and scribes felt that these additional traditions were a fence around the law that would protect it from passing away. Their attempt to protect the law can be seen most clearly in their endless Sabbath regulations. According to their rules, they were forbidden to look into a mirror on the Sabbath because one might find a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out. Such an act was considered working on the Sabbath. <laughs> Let it go. Let it go. Let it go, Phil. Almost broke God's law on the Sabbath. Right? They also said it was forbidden to wear false teeth on the Sabbath because if they fell out of the mouth, they would have to pick them up. According to the rabbis, that was considered carrying a burden on the Sabbath. <laughs> Wouldn't that stink? You're in the marketplace and, boom, and it falls out. Now you got to go around toothless all day. What, you know, what part of Jerusalem are you from? South Carolina? Can you imagine if you have a falsy fall, if you have dentures and, the, and, the, and fix a dent fails for you, whatever reason, you're talking, they fly out, you can't even pick them up. you got to come on Monday. Hopefully nobody trampled on them. This is the best example I have for you right here. And these are the rules they live by. And we laugh at it. And we're like, <laughs> fools. I wonder what rules we've layered into, onto the truth here. And listen to this one. This is the most extraordinary one. This one, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through it. Another example concerned a man with a wooden leg. <laughs> Apparently they had pirates back then too. Okay, another example concerned a man with a wooden leg whose house caught on fire on the Sabbath. A major debate surrounded whether he was allowed to put on his wooden leg in order to walk out of his house or if he was required to carry it on the Sabbath to flee to safety. They spent their time discussing the legitimacy of these rules and regulations. A guy with a wooden leg couldn't even put on his wooden leg to walk out of his house that's on fire. He probably, they would probably have preferred that he just sat in there and burned up with his wooden leg. Now, these are insane, crazy, ridiculous things. We laugh and scoff at them. 
but these were held so serious by them that any breach of them was a serious, serious manner. These are just a couple examples. Now think of this. Circumcision was at the very, very top of the list of things that you must do. Wooden leg thing, very important, but down the chain a little bit. False tooth, real serious, but number 742 on the list, right? Circumcision in the top five. If you did not get circumcised, you broke the oral traditions, you broke the law of Moses, what have you, and you were probably going to go to hell. Now, circumcision was given as a sign of the old covenant. The men from Jerusalem failed to realize that they were under a new covenant through Jesus Christ where the old covenant graces were fulfilled in him. Circumcision was abolished at Calvary. When Jesus died on the cross, he absorbed the law. He fulfilled the law for those who believe. The law still stands as a testimony to those who are unsaved. It says, you're not perfect, you better repent and believe in Jesus Christ. But to those who are in Christ, circumcision does not have any potency. It does not have any rule over us. It was absorbed, it was abolished at Calvary. The sacrificial system uh, was abolished at the cross at Calvary. The penalty of the law was abolished at Calvary for those who believe. In a way, God issued a global invitation to some degree to come to him for salvation when the veil of the temple was torn in two. Through Jesus Christ, God would become the redeemer of Greeks, Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, slaves, and free men. If you look in Colossians 3.11, God is the God who redeems all sorts of people. Whether they're circumcised, uncircumcised, it doesn't matter. He is the redeemer of all types of people, Colossians 3.11. But these men were still fixed on the old way. To them, the uncircumcised could not be saved and therefore received into the fellowship of the church. Their teaching resulted in a total rejection of the uncircumcised Gentiles of that congregation, which was the strong majority and I suspect the rejection of them. You're not circumcised, you can't be saved. I suspect that rejection in a public setting led to a division between the Jewish and Gentile believers of that church. It always does. This seems to be the case in the Galatian churches, which happened a little later. Even the apostle Peter got sucked into that controversy and mess. Out of fear, he rejected his Gentile brothers. He used to eat alongside of them and fellowship with them and ham it up and have a good time with them. They were just Christians just like him. He would hang out with them all the time. But then this circumcision clique kind of shows up on the scene, and he takes sides with the circumcision clique. He says, away, Gentiles. You're not circumcised. I need to go hang out with these brothers. Even Peter, the apostle, who was prone to that kind of error, got sucked into that kind of stuff. And and played a fool. And Paul basically nuked him in public. And we'll study that later on in chapter 16. Again, can you imagine a group of men coming in and saying these things? <laughs> saying them to you here? That's a tragedy, what took place here. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We're going to have to continue next week. And maybe what we would ponder as we transition into communion, maybe one thing that we would ponder at this point 
where has legalism come into play in your own faith? Are you a scripture alone kind of person or were you raised in a, in a particular group a particular, according to particular traditions? And, and those traditions are every bit is authoritative and, and, and uh, to be bound by those things than the scripture itself. It's a good thing to ponder. That's exactly what we're reading about in the scripture. Circumcision, you got to do it. Okay? It's not biblical to say that you need to be circumcised to be a Christian. There's other reasons to get circumcised, but there's certainly not so that you can be saved. What would some of the legalistic tendencies be in our church culture today? I'll tell you where one of the biggest ones lays, and that's in the use of alcohol. There are Christians who say, if you drink a beer, you're going to hell. Where does that come from? If you drink two beers, you're going to purgatory for six months. Then you go to hell. You drink three, it's over with. There's a place greater than hell for you. Is that a biblical principle and foundational truth? Or is that a legalistic, traditional, I was raised as a Baptist? And I mean no offense to you if that's your belief. That is what some groups, in, in terms of alcohol. Now, do I think... I think all things are permissible for those who are in Christ, but I don't think all things are beneficial. For some people, alcohol is not beneficial. If you act a fool with it, it's not beneficial. If you can glorify God and worship him, and some would think you cannot glorify God having a beer. Are you kidding me? Have you tried any of the craft beers today? The first thing you say is, oh, Lord. <laughs> this is phenomenal. We're not talking about drunkenness here, okay? Drunkenness is terrible because it leads to other behaviors. It leads to table dancing and foolishness, prom promiscuity. It leads to terrible things. I know I used to drink a lot, and I was not the same person when I was drunk. We're not talking about drunkenness here. We're talking about the, we're talking about the worshipful use of something that God has provided for our enjoyment. Let's not forget that Jesus drank wine. Okay, these things have been provided. God has provided all things for his own glory. There are some things that we've concocted and and, and made ourselves that are not glorifying. There's no doubt. But alcohol would be one of them. If you're raised in a tradition that says that's just evil, that's wicked, stay away from it, don't bring it into your house and all that, I would say that is a legalistic attitude and practice. And guess what happens to those who are sucked into that, raised in that, indoctrinated in that? They see some other brother or sister that has a, 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 a sip of something and they condemn them. And they say, you know what? You can't be a true Christian because you drink beer once in a while. You can't be a Christian because you enjoy a good glass of cab. How dare you? You can't do that as a Christian. You're not supposed to do that. That's legalism, friends. That's one example. There are a zillion examples. The baptism thing. If you don't get baptized, you're not, that's not scriptural. That's legalism. You don't get circumcised. That's legalism. You can't have a beer. That's legalism. How many other examples of this are there? There are zillions. If you don't wear this particular thing on top of your head, you can't be a Christian. Right? That's not scripture. That's legalism. And so as you transition into communion, maybe that's what you ask. God, what have I added to your word? What have I added to salvation? Have I added something to salvation first and foremost? Is there something that I got to do here to keep this thing going? Is there something I've been doing that, you know, that maybe, maybe God does provide provision for it if it's done in a way that honors him that I have just condemned because that's what I've been taught my whole life? Legalism is, is probably, I would say, 
We all have the tendency. It's one of the ugliest things that you see in the church today. And I think the reason why it's so ugly is because of the profound effect it has when people, when I begin to take my conscience and my upbringing and all that and I layer it on Aaron. And I say, Aaron, you can't do these things. Look at you, you can't, whatever. That is just atrocious. And it binds him up and it hurts him and it causes division and it causes disunity. Ask yourself, do I have legalistic tendencies? Do I know people who have that? How might I be able to best minister to them? Because guess what? Legalists are imprisoned and they try to imprison others in their legalism. And that is no way to exist. I would rather have no religion than to be a legalist. I would. I'd rather just go about freely and do what I do. Legalism is horrific. It's terrible. You realize it was the number one thing condemned by Jesus Christ? The Pharisees were legalists and they were so legalistic they would catch themselves in their own laws, breaking their own laws, which made them hypocrites. Jesus condemned them for being hypocrites. Have you ever read the seven woes of Matthew 23? That is a section of scripture that demolishes legalism. Because guess what? If you add a whole bunch of stuff to scripture and try to live it out and force it on everyone else, you're going to fail and you're going to be seen as a hypocrite and it's horrible. And guess what? True salvation has nothing to do with legalism. It doesn't. It's about grace through faith to the glory of God alone. That's the gift. What a spectacular gift it is. May we never add or subtract from what God has done. Don't bring beer into the mix. Don't bring this practice into the mix. Don't bring head covering into it. Don't bring this behavioral thing into it. Leave it out. Please. Ponder these things before you take the elements. And I, I want to remind you that communion is for the saints. It's for those who know Jesus in a saving way and love him. It's not for those who, who have yet to come to know. And I pray that you would come to know him. And, and maybe for you, if you're in this room and you don't know yet, you don't yet know Jesus Christ, that you would be hearing maybe for the first time that Christianity isn't about a bunch of rules. It's about grace. That's what it's about. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I don't have to save myself and be a good person and, and clean myself up and, and walk a particular line to be loved and accepted and cherished and saved and redeemed and adopted by God. Guess what? God takes you because you're a harlot. He doesn't save squeaky clean people. He saves sinners. If that isn't the best news the world has ever heard, doesn't that just get you fired up, Christian? Man. And so maybe for the first time you're hearing, wait a minute, Christianity's not about obeying a bunch, a whole bunch of rules and all that? No. It's not. Let's pray before we take the elements. And Father, you have extended to people who are not worthy of even being acknowledged by you. We are a rebel force against you and all that is right and good. And yet, in your mind that confuses me sometimes, because I know me and when I ponder me, I can't even imagine why you'd save anyone like me. And yet somehow, that's who you are. And that is the... And, and there's nothing that I bring to it. I did my part. Yeah, actually, you know what? I do my part. 
my part is sin. And you reach down in all power and grace and mercy and you pull people like me right out of this world and into your kingdom. What a glorious thing you do for us. You are a redeemer. You are a rescuer. And you take us and you clean us up. We don't clean ourselves. And you don't say to your child, now here's a whole big list of rules. Now go out and do all these things or I'm not going to love you and I'm not going to keep you. And you say, child, enjoy my grace for eternity. Live for me. You even give us the power and ability through the might of the Holy Spirit to actually turn around and obey you and do things that please you. It's astonishing. And we're compelled to do that out of gratitude, not because we have to do it so we can get more Cadillac Escalades or more favor from you or any of that junk that so many teach today. God, make us like Christ. May we never add to or subtract from the definitive, complete, finished work that you did at Calvary. Every time we gaze upon a cross, may we see it's all about Jesus, what he did. May we know, everyone in this room know that we are saved by grace through faith for your glory. We have legalistic tendencies, expose them to us now, that we, we, we may repent. That we, we may repent of these things and live in the fullness of your grace and joy. Because those who bind people up and themselves up do not have joy. Legalism is the religion. May we forfeit that stuff and surrender fully to your grace and mercy, depending only on Jesus Christ. And may we become vessels and evangelists that proclaim this wondrous, extraordinary freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. The abundant life that he spoke about of absolute peace, unending joy, purpose, satisfaction. We jump from one thing to the next, but when we have Christ, we simply need to gaze upon him who is our satisfaction. It's all in him. It's all that he's done. May we remember what he did on Calvary, where he paid our sin debt, where he bought us, where he redeemed us, where he cleansed us, where he gave righteousness to us that we could never get on our own. That's what those elements represent, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer. He made the atonement. It's all Him. May we never forget that. And may we worship Him. May we ponder what we've heard, apply, repent, and rejoice. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Help yourselves, friends.